Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The red wine headache has long been a mystery. Is it sulfites, tannins, alcohol itself? Researchers have looked into it. And each one of them made some sense, but each one of them has in succession been ruled out and and sort of disproven. It's Friday, December 8th, and would you take a look at that? Today is Science Friday. I'm sci-fi producer Kathleen Davis. Since ancient Greece, people have complained about headaches shortly after drinking red wine. It's not the same thing as a hangover, and lots of theories about what causes it have been debunked. A new report suggests a new culprit, quercetin, an antioxidant found in grape skins. Flora Lichtman will talk about that in just a moment. But first, a roundup of the top science stories of the week. Smoke from increased wildfires in the U.S. has uh, reversed progress made in cleaning America's air, caused hundreds of deaths between 2000 and 2020, according to a new study published in The Lancet. Joining me to talk about this and other science stories of the week is Rachel Feltman, host of The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That is the name of her show. Not what, not, anyhow, based, <laughs> based in New York. Nice to have you back, Rachel. Thanks for having me, Ira. Nice to have you. So, all right, tell us about this new report, if you will. Yeah, so, you know, as uh, anyone who uh, has has been alive uh, for, uh, you know, this period of time might be aware, the EDA has made a lot of progress cleaning up America's air since uh, the mid-20th century. Unfortunately, according to this new study, all of the increase in wildfire smoke, um, because of course wildfire seasons are growing longer, wildfires are becoming more common in more areas, may have actually been enough to, um, at least on the West Coast, like null out that progress in terms of at least fatalities that are tied to air pollution. Hmm. So if there's not a fire, is the air pretty good otherwise? Yeah, so air quality is is still something that, you know, is very dependent on where you are and uh, what's going on. So if uh, you you look at the air quality report for your area and it says the air is safe, it it totally is. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why, you know, the the researchers in particular were saying that, you know, these 670 premature deaths um, were in the West in particular, but they didn't include data from this last uh, wildfire season, which, um, of course, as as all your listeners know, led to some really, really bad air quality all the way on the East Coast. Right, right. I got it. Let's move on to your next story, which is about researchers discovering the oldest known fossils of mosquitoes. Wow. What, what did they yeah. learn there? Yeah. 
130 million years old. Apparently, that's still um, not the oldest mosquito that existed. We we know they were around for a long time by that point. But they found these two males. And what's really interesting is that these two males um, had the kind of uh, mouth anatomy you need to drink blood. Um, and today, only female mosquitoes drink blood. It's something they only do uh, when they need protein to help eggs develop. So this is just a really interesting look into mosquito evolution, showing us that at some point, probably all mosquitoes were bloodsuckers. No, no Jurassic Park ancient mosquito blood angle here. In this I book. hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't speak to that, Ira. All right, let's move into space news. It wouldn't be Science Friday without some space news. You, you brought us a bunch of stories, a really cool one up first. A solar system was discovered with six planets orbiting in sync. They're calling it the, the solar six-pack. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, so this multi-planet system, uh, the, the gravitational formation is, is known as resonance. Um, so basically, it's, a, it, it's kind of a, a tongue twister, but like the, the planets are um, orbiting in this like fixed ratio. So mm -hmm. like every time one of them makes three orbits, the, the one tighter in makes two orbits. And it's such a perfect ratio that they first spotted a couple of the planets and they were actually able to guess how many other planets they were going to find between them because they were like, they're following this pattern so perfectly. There have to be others in there to, to fill in the gaps of this uh, synchronized ratio we're seeing. Um, so it's really cool. It, it's very rare to uh, find planets in sync like this. What I like about this, besides how cool the discovery is, is that it, the system, the solar system, is only 100 light years away from us, right? Which means that intelligent life, it's there, might be able to eavesdrop on radio shows from the <laughs> 1920s here on Earth, right? It's true. Well, and so all of the planets that they spotted, um, which are what we call sub-Neptunes, they're a little bit smaller than Neptune, and they're orbiting a star that's uh, just uh, a little bit dimmer than our star, they're all um, outside of the habitable zone. It's basically uh, like shucks. the entire range of planets is within the range of Mercury in our solar system. Mm. But uh, it's possible there are other planets further out in this solar system that are habitable, um, and uh, James Webb might be peeking over wow. to uh, try to suss that out soon. No, I Love Lucy is on its way to them also. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go go to one of my favorite stars in the, in the night sky, and it's going, I understand, to disappear for 12 seconds next week. Ooh. Yes. Uh, Betelgeuse is uh, the 10th brightest star in the sky, and it's going to briefly blink out of view um, on either December 11th or December 12th, depending on where you are. Uh, it'll only be visible in this really narrow path, but there will be some uh, live streams from the Virtual Telescope Project in Italy, so people all over the world can check it out. It's uh, what's called an occultation, where an asteroid just happens to pass in exactly the right way to uh, just block this very bright star from view. And what, what uh, you know, scientists love when this happens, right? They, they can learn stuff from it? Yeah, you know, whenever um, a celestial body is passing in front of a star and we know it's going to happen, um, we can look at it and, you know, based on how the light changes, uh, we can infer a bunch of stuff about um, both of those bodies, you know, about mm, the star right. and about the asteroid. Um, so, yeah, scientists are very excited. 
and um, I guess you know you have to say the star's th- star's name three times to make it come back, um, <laughs> and if not. I don't know what's going to happen. Or watch the movie or something like that. Uh, <laughs> let's 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 uh, bring it back home for the last space story. And I'm talking about apparently a dwarf planet, the the dwarf planet Eris in our solar system is a little squishy. What what does that mean? Yeah, I I really love this one, Ira. Um, is Eris, which is it's named for the Greek goddess of discord because when it was first spotted, it looked like it was a little bigger than Pluto, and that started the whole debate that led to Pluto's demotion. Um, They are, in fact, like almost perfect twins. Um, But unlike Pluto, which we know from uh, its flyby is like a really respectable little planet with lots of like interesting uh, activity going on, um, Eris, it turns out, is maybe pretty squishy. What Uh, what does that mean, squishy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, these new models um, using data from uh, radio telescopes in Chile basically infer that there's heat left over from when the dwarf planet was created um that like the the rocks inside are still radioactive enough that they're they're creating this heat and they think it's like kind of oozing and might like kind of make the icy surface of the planet flex um it, it flows a little bit. They, the scientists have compared it to a soft cheese. <laughs> um, it kind of sounds like it's maybe like a ball of fondue cheese covered uh, in like like shaved ice. That's the, the picture I'm getting. The camembert model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and what can they learn something about our own planet or our solar system from this? Uh, you know, I'm not sure anyone uh, has has made that connection yet. But, you know, we always love to learn more about how uh, planet formation can go and right. sort of how the planetary body can evolve. So the fact that this this little dwarf planet, which is so cold because it's 68 times farther away from the sun than Earth, uh, might have, you know, enough kind mm. of internal heat to keep it kind of roiling uh, is, is certainly yeah. fascinating. I love the cheese analogy. Let's come back down here <laughs> to Earth a bit. A plastic bag recycling effort has not worked out as promised. Tell us about that, please. Yeah. So um, about 20 years ago, this this online recycling directory for plastic bags started off um, the film drop-off directory. Uh, and six months ago, an ABC News investigation uh, found that this directory, which listed like 18,000 store drop-off locations where you could supposedly drop your plastic bags, get them recycled, um, they put trackers on a bunch of bags, and most of them did not end up getting recycled. Uh, a lot ended up in landfills. Some got sent to overseas facilities that don't handle plastic bag recycling right. at all. Um, so, you know, the the website itself was just a directory, and this was a place where brands like Target and Walmart um, had claimed that they were going to facilitate this recycling. And um, so now, six months later, uh, the website has been taken down um, because the, the oh. people who were creating it say, you know, this is basically at this point just supporting greenwashing because um, – this was this was really right. misleading for people. Right. Let's finally move on to the magazine. Popular Science was effectively shuttered a couple of weeks ago. I know you used to work for them and you're still doing podcasting with the company. But this is really a huge loss of science journalism. So many of us grew up with Popular Science. 
Yeah, I grew up with PopSci too. And, you know, it, it was such an honor to uh, to get to work on the print magazine. You know, it has a 151-year history. Um, I was I was so psyched to be there and be executive editor for the 150th anniversary. Um, and, of course, the magazine went digital a while ago. So, uh, you know, the the brand has evolved before and um it it will evolve again i hope but it's definitely um it's it is uh, a blow um i mean it's yeah, 151 I, hoping... 151 years of publication yeah wow. yeah well like you said um the hope is that the podcast i host for pop Sci, the weirdest thing i learned this week is going to get to continue in 2024 so um i hope if, if folks are feeling nostalgic they will uh check it out because it really is is keeping the spirit of pop Sci alive you know and and, and it is is it following the trend of just other magazines that are shutting down or is there a reason having to do with science that it covers any idea on that Oh, I, I really have have no idea about yeah. that, Ira. Um, but you know, media is a is a tough industry these days, unfortunately. So, um, I I definitely encourage listeners to um, go out of their way to support the the news outlets that they really value. Rachel, thank you very much, uh, for, and good luck to you. Uh, thank you, Ira. Rachel Feltman, host of the podcast "Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week." Hi, Ira here, reminding you that Science Friday has a dollar-for-dollar donation match, which means that any donation made through December 31st will be doubled. Yes, so now is the time to head over to sciencefriday.com support and make a gift. Our 2024 programming depends on the generosity of our fans and listeners. Again, that's sciencefriday.com support. And thanks. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And I'm Flora Lichtman. It's the season of merrymaking, and that means you're always looking for a gift to bring to somebody's holiday party, right? Right. Lots of times, I feel like a bottle of wine is perfect. It fits the bill. It is absolutely true, and I was just thinking about that, which makes me wonder, are you, Flora, a red or a white wine person? Thank you for asking. I'm a both person. You're safe with me with either. But, you know, I have noticed this weird thing with red wine, the head pain that comes along with it. You know, that's right. I think everybody gets that, the the dreaded red wine headache. And, you know, you don't know what it is because it feels sometimes like a hangover, but it's not quite that, right? Right. Well, I learned that's exactly it. It's completely different from a hangover. And there's been a breakthrough in what might actually cause it. So this comes from Dr. Morris Levin, director of the Headache Center at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. Dr. Levin, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay, first of all, I just want to clear this up. So a red wine headache is not a hangover? Right. It's a different kind of thing. Hangover headaches, as you know, and as everybody knows, happen a number of hours after drinking, tend to happen the next morning, uh, and they tend to happen when one overdrinks more than yes, just I do uh, know. drinking a little bit right <laughs> and what and this is different this is quicker it happens in the first couple of hours and it can sometimes occur uh after just drinking a little bit and does it happen with all alcohol or is this a red wine specific headache it's really specific to red wine hence the name and um i think people can get it after drinking white wine or after drinking another kind of alcohol, but it's kind of rare. And it's been a mystery as to why this happens with just red wine for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Thousands of years? Really? Right, right. 
Has it been referenced in in literature? Well, I don't know, but I think it probably has occurred to people. I know it's been referenced uh, for the last couple of hundred years. It seems like there's a lot of misinformation about what causes or might cause red wine headaches. Like I've heard that sulfites in in wine are bad. Are they responsible? Right, Flora. It's been a lot of things. It's been uh, tannins that have been proposed, yes, histamine, sulfites, yeah. tyramine, um, alcohol itself. And each one of them made some sense, but each one of them has in succession been ruled out and, and sort of disproven pretty convincingly. And now, as you as you gathered, um, Andy Waterhouse, the wine chemist, and I uh, have settled on this compound that's found particularly uh, in red wines. Yeah, talk to me about your theory. The theory is that a compound called quercetin, which is present in red wine in much higher concentrations than it is in white wine and other alcoholic beverages, is the culprit, although it's not a direct culprit. It actually inhibits an enzyme that is responsible for detoxifying alcohol in our systems. And the problem is when that enzyme doesn't work properly, there is a buildup of a toxin called acetaldehyde. And it's a pretty nasty toxin that not only causes headaches, causes a number of other symptoms. And the more I look into this acetaldehyde, I think it's not just toxic in terms of things like headaches and maybe a little nausea and so on. I think it's toxic uh, to a number of organs and might be kind of dangerous, more dangerous than I thought. So if you have a red wine headache, does that mean other bad things are happening in your body? Good question. I don't know. I think it might. Of course, like anything else, like any other toxin, the more you take in, the worse it is. And I think probably the occasional red wine is not going to hurt anybody other than maybe giving them the headache. I'm glad to hear that. What does this chemical do? Is that the right word, chemical, for quercetin? Yeah, it's an interesting compound. It's not in itself dangerous. In fact, it's marketed as a nutritional supplement um, because it's an antioxidant. It's a member of this uh, family called flavonoids, and they are kind of helpful and uh, can be can be helpful for people. But it's when taken in in concentrations uh, that are kind of high in conjunction with alcohol, ethanol, that's where it can be a problem. What does it do in the grape? Like, what's its its purpose in the grape? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's found in a lot. This this flavonoid, this quercetin, is found in a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables, and it's uh, it's a pigment. And so it uh, it it is found in uh, grapes and other foods uh, that are colorful. For example, um, it's found in onions, but only the onions that are colorful, like like yellow onions. Found in um, other vegetables and fruits, and it's probably not bad for you at all, unless it's taken, like I said, with alcohol. Oh, interesting. I mean, does the fermentation process have any effect on its concentration or or how it's working in the body? We don't think so. But what seems to happen is that when grapes are exposed to a lot of sunlight, which is a good thing in the um, in the, the winemaking business, the more sunlight grapes are exposed to, the more sugar and the better they ferment. And you know, I I gather um, that particular happenstance allows grapes to um, turn into very, very good wines. And so one of the things that we've noticed is that the better wines that have th this kind of high sun exposure, high, high sugar content to the grapes makes the best wines. So uh, Andy Waterhouse is thinking that if you want to avoid this kind of headache, maybe drink the less expensive, the, the cheaper <laughs> wines. 
<laughs> Music to my ears. Right. <laughs> so does that mean it's found in the skin of the grape and that's why you see it more in red wine than in, in white wine? I think that's right. And then, like I said, the grapes that are uh, treated in certain ways have more quercetin. And uh, interestingly, white wines just uh, just don't have much. So where did this theory come from? I mean, what, what sort of science do you have to back it up and what would it take to to know for sure that this is what's causing the red wine headache? That's the key question. And right now it's just a theory, so we do have to prove it. We think, uh, first of all, the way we came up with this idea, and it wasn't our first idea, um, but the way uh, we came up with it is to look at what is present in red wine and not present in any other type of wine or other alcoholic beverages. And, and this sort of passed muster for something that is very high in red wine and, and low in other um, beverages. So after um, thinking about and excluding some other culprits, potential culprits, this just seemed to be um, obvious. Mm. And what would it take to, to prove it? We could and we have designed a few experiments that we're waiting to do because we need to get funding for doing such things. But uh, uh, a simple experiment that, that I think might work is to simply ask people to try wines with low quercetin compared to wines with high quercetin. These would be people who do get red wine headaches and see what happens. And then down the line, we'll look at particular concentrations. We'll probably evolve ways to um, have quercetin entered into the systems of people in other ways and see what happens. And, uh, you know, I, I think it'll work uh, one way or another, prove or disprove this theory. And of course, uh, it'll be real helpful to people who'd like to drink red wine and we hope it'll be helpful to wine producers, and that's nice. But what, what really um, appeals to me is that, you know, this is my focus of my career for just about my whole career, one of my main foci. And, and what I'm hoping is that if we can learn more about this, we can learn more about what causes some headache types. We can learn about the big question in my practice, which is why do some people have much worse and much more frequent headaches than others? Well, I wondered about that if there are different kinds of different categories of headaches or if all if every headache is the same no there are and uh, of course the most common headache condition is migraine and even though we've been studying migraine we meaning the medical world has been studying migraine for hundreds of years still a lot of unanswered questions one of the things i've noticed about red wine headaches is that my patients with migraine seem to be particularly prone to red wine headaches so, but yes, there are a number of headache types from uh, tension type headache to cluster headache, post-traumatic headaches, and so on. For so many Black people, the whiz feels like home. <laughs> the new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When I have a headache, what is actually hurting? Like, is it is something happening in my brain? Is it around my brain? Like, where's the pain coming from? Yeah, that's a good question. You probably remember that the brain itself doesn't feel pain. It's insensate. But the linings around the brain, called the meninges, are very pain sensitive. And the, the skull itself, even though it doesn't feel pain, the linings around the skull are very sensitive. The scalp is very sensitive. 
blood vessels around the brain and around the head are very sensitive. We think the pain in migraine comes from a pain process, a pain producing process in the linings around the brain called the dura. But um, red wine headache is still a little mysterious. I think it's probably similar to migraine in some ways, but we're not sure. When you say that there's a pain process happening, does that mean that there's swelling or there's inflammation? What's actually causing the pain? Yeah, you said it, inflammation. Probably inflammation with associated swelling and blood vessel changes and chemicals that get secreted that produce pain. Are there headaches that don't have a trigger? Yeah, good question. I think everything is part of a process. Everything in the headache world is part of a process that has a kind of a beginning and then hopefully an end. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are headaches that just seem spontaneous. Some of my patients are very good, for example, at identifying all their triggers, whether it's weather changes, foods, or, or stress. Other patients will tell me that for no particular reason, they have gotten very bad headaches. How did you get into this red wine question? Are you afflicted personally? <laughs> you know, I drink I drink wine. I don't drink very much, and I, I kind of like it, but um, I don't have a big tolerance for wine. Yet I know that I have to be careful with red wine in particular because I will get a red wine headache, but that's not how I got interested in it. I was just approached by Andy Waterhouse with this idea that we should really try and find out the cause of it. Is there a big headache mystery that you're dying to solve? Oh, so many. You know, I think, like I said, we've come a long way in terms of understanding how migraine, the most common headache type, exists. And why is it that some people, like me, for example, get a migraine attack once a month or so? It's not so hard to abort the attack, and uh, we go on with our day. And other patients, especially some of my most difficult patients, um, have headaches more days than not. Why is that? You know, why are some people so disabled? Why are there many, many patients who don't just have headaches, but they have a lot of accompanying symptoms like cognitive changes, mood changes, terrible nausea, visual changes, etc. So I could go on and on. There are lots of mysteries, uh, but that's the way science is, medical science especially. We solve one mystery and two more pop up. Fascinating. That's all the time we have for now. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Morris Levin, Director of the Headache Center at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Flora. Thank you. And that's all the time that we have for today. A lot of folks helped make the show happen, including Ariel Zitch, Santiago Flores, Dee Petersmith, Felissa Mares, and many more. On Monday, we'll talk about the trailblazing female astronomers who identified hundreds of the stars that we know today. But for now, I'm Sci-Fi producer Kathleen Davis. Have a great weekend. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.